0: Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This week in synagogues throughout North America, the Torah portion that is being read is entitled Bishalach. It is the story of the 12 tribes with 12 spies being sent by Moses to reconnoiter the promised land. And as many of you listeners will know, this is quite an important story in the narrative of the Torah. The Torah portion begins in Numbers 13 and continues through chapter 15. Let me give you an overview of our Torah portion before I introduce our guest Darshan, our guest commentator. Moses sends 12 spies to the land of Canaan. Forty days later, they return, carrying a huge cluster of grapes, a pomegranate, and a fig to report on a lush and bountiful land. But ten of the spies warn that the inhabitants of the land are giants and and warriors and are in our sight more powerful than we. Only those identified as Caleb and Joshua insist that the land can be conquered as the divine God has commanded. The people respond to this report with weeping and the announcement that, once again, they would rather return to Egypt. God decrees that Israel's entry into land shall be delayed for 40 years, during which time the entire generation that came out of Egypt will die out in the desert. A group of remorseful Jews storm the mountain on the border of the land in order to prove their faithfulness, and are routed by Amalekites and Canaanites. The narrative then takes a turn, and we learn the laws of the Nisachim, the meal, wine, and oil offerings, as well as the mitzvah, the commandment to consecrate a portion of the dough known as challah to God when making bread. A man violates the Shabbat by gathering sticks and is put to death. The Torah portion concludes with God instructing the Israelites to place fringes known as tzitzit on the four corners of their garments so that the Jews will remember to fill the mitzvot, the divine commandments, 24-7, 24 hours every day. As you can tell by this overview, this is a Torah portion that is filled with interesting narratives and some interesting legal material as well. This morning, my guest is calling in from Jerusalem. So we are speaking about the spies' reluctance to conquer the land, but my guest is Rabbi Brooke Sussman, who finds himself in beautiful downtown Jerusalem, and we are so thankful that he has arranged his schedule to join us. Rabbi Sussman was ordained at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 1974, having received his bachelor's degree at Ohio University in Philosophy and Political Science. In 1999, he received a Doctor of Divinity degree. During his years in seminary, he opened a draft counseling service. He worked as a counselor, especially focusing on family and marriage, problem pregnancies, homosexuality, and drugs. He has served congregations in New York, Pennsylvania, and Missouri. He is the founding rabbi of Congregation Kol Am serving the Jewish community of Western Monmouth County in New Jersey. He is on the board of directors of New York Board of Rabbis, as well as the International Synagogue at Kennedy Airport in New York City. He is on the board of directors of ARTSA, the Association of Reform Zionists of America. And in addition, he served on the editorial board for the authoring of the books of the reform movement known as Gates of Mitzvah and Gates of the Festivals, two how-to books that show how one can follow the Jewish holidays and life cycle events from a non-Orthodox perspective. So it is a great pleasure to invite uh, Brooks, Rabbi Brooks Sussman, to join us um, this morning, welcome from Jerusalem.
1: It's my pleasure to be here on a beautiful afternoon, as you said, in downtown Jerusalem. And since you gave the full synopsis of the Torah portion, thank you. I'll see you next year. <laughs> I have nothing else to add. You said everything.
0: Well, um, the synopsis doesn't take us into the depth that this torah portion requires. So let's uh, begin right at the beginning um with some of um the interesting dynamics of the language of this torah portion um this is the second year after the exodus as you noted earlier um and moses is now in charge of a group of people who have experienced both the wonders of freedom, but also the hardships of freedom. So how does this story fit in to that transition for that group of people? use
1: the the perfect word. This is the transitional Torah portion. Prior to this week's Torah portion, prior to this story, it's been God in control. Uh, God, Hashem, Jehovah, Yahweh, all the same name, this God of Israel has controlled their lives. He is the one who freed them from the the servitude, split the Red Sea, uh, revealed to them the Ten Commandments on Arsena Mount Sinai, as well as many of the how-to mitzvah commandments. And so it's been all God. Now it becomes Moses. In previous portions, when God has spoken to Moses, he has commanded Moses to speak to the children of Israel, tell the children of Israel, go to Pharaoh, send. But here, it's shlach Send for yourself. It's that transition of empowerment. That now, Moses is now no longer just the leader, the one who led them uh, with, with his staff, Now he is the one who has to become the military commander. He recognizes now that if they are going into the quote-unquote promised land, it's not going to be dependent upon God taking care of all of their enemies. They are going to have to lose their slave mentality. They have been in servitude for 420 years, asking where has God been? In their minds, they know only how to follow a master, how to be slaves, how to be quiescent, how to give in. And so when Moses tells these chieftains, these leaders of each tribe, that they are to go and scout out the land. He is the military commander. He is the general. He wants to see what kind of land it is, how militarily he can attack that land and what that land is.
0: Well, it's How interesting I... that you see this in such a transitional way um, and that you focus on the phrase shlach lacha, send for yourself as this um, um, dynamic of the people having to be responsible for themselves for the first time. Um, I would call to our listeners' attention that in the book of Deuteronomy, um, as Moses recounts the history of the Israelites wandering in the desert, he retells this story in a very different manner, um, and warns and not to take responsibility. I'm exactly. sorry?
1: Well, Moses in Deuteronomy is explaining, maybe, or trying to speak to God and say, hey, how come only Caleb and Joshua get to the promised land? Right, You know, I don't take responsibility. We have the story of when Moses and God says there's no water, God says to Moses, strike the rock. Moses strikes the rock. A little further, in a different Torah portion, in this, in Numbers, no water, God says, speak to the rock. Well, Moses strikes the rock. If it worked once, it'll work again. And that's when God says, you can't go into the promised land. This is becoming part of the mentality of Moses. He is—he is, if nothing more, he is a complex human being. He's on one level, the the follower of God. On the other, he's the leader of the people, and he has—he has an ego. Even though supposedly we're told he is egoless, he is like every normal human being. So, hey, I got stuck with these people for 40 years in this wilderness listening to their griping and their moaning and their fetching, and I'm the one who had to listen to them. How come I'm being punished? How come it's Caleb and Joshua? And this well, that's, cer- that's
0: certainly the thrust of Deuteronomy as Moses pleads to enter the promised land. Um, and for those listeners who want to compare the stories, you certainly can do so. If we return to this week's Torah portion, Slach Lecha, uh, or shalach as it's known, um, perhaps, Rabbi, you can explain this interesting um, gift that the spies bring back, that uh, they, they bring back a, a cluster of grapes, a pomegranate and figs, um, and then they speak about the inhabitants of the land. And each of those, of course, are very symbolic more than just um, literal expressions of what they find in the land.
1: Well, the symbol of tourism in Israel is two individuals with a staff between which is a huge cluster of grapes. And that becomes the symbol of what these spies brought back with the pomegranate fig. The bounty of the harvest, it is in Hebrew, eretz, Zavat chalav, budvash, a land flowing of milk and honey. As an aside, no oil. But milk and honey is in abundance. What happens? They come back and they're told, it's wonderful there, it's wonderful there. But as you mentioned, we seem like grasshoppers to them. In our own eyes, they seem like giants to us. And this becomes a fascinating addition because they claim we see the Nephilim. Nephilim, the fallen ones or those who descend. So where else do we see that word Nephilim? We see it in the book of Genesis. Just before the story of Noah, we see the Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? They are gods. Ne Ha Elohim, sons of the God who cohabit with, mort- with mortal women, and they create the Giborim, the mighty ones. Now, the, is the Bible talking about extraterrestrials? Or what's also partly parcel of the context? We look at Greek, not mythology, but Greek religion, and all of their heroes, their gods. So many of them descend to Earth and cohabit with men and women. We have so many references. Zeus uh, and Hercules is an illegitimate child of Zeus and a mortal woman. We have Perseus, Helen of Troy, and Minos, all of whom are they? Are they offspring of extraterrestrials who came down and made babies, made human beings, so it becomes a
0: Fascinating
1: story,
0: because where would that come from all of a sudden? Right. We don't have time to um, delve into the Nephilim, but you're right. It is an interesting reappearance of something that only appeared in Genesis 6. And now, um, three books later into the Torah, makes a uh, surprise return as the uh, spies make their report about the promised land. And
1: it's after the word, the Nephalim, that then are listed the, the the nations, the Canaanites, the Anakites, the Amalekites, all of whom are going to be the Betmoor, the the, 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 the the hated cultures and nations of, of these Naqshlep Israelites. And what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to circuitously go around all of these nations because they aren't a fighting force yet.
0: You began by suggesting that this Torah portion is transitional and that the Israelites and Moses were going to have to be responsible for themselves. And there's a phrase in the Torah portion that I'm hoping that you can help our listeners understand Um, returning after 40 days. The Israelites say, we look like grasshoppers to ourselves, that's absolutely right. You know, they, they are these ex-slaves. They
1: see themselves as diminished, as diminutive, as, as as poor in terms of power. And they have yet to prove themselves. That's what Moses wanted to insist upon them. And it wouldn't work. And so if they went for 40 days, they are now consigned to 40 years of wandering. Why 40 years? Because that becomes two generations. If it's considered that a generation of 20 years, by the time they are ready to be at uh, Nebi Musa in what's now Jordan, to cross the Jordan River into the promised land, they are two generations, three generations removed from Egypt, and they no longer have that slave mentality.
0: It's interesting to me, and perhaps to our listeners, and maybe you can help us, that the Torah says, We looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. So in using that phraseology, one would think that the emphasis is on their own self-perception, right? Unlike um, if you were to stand next to um, the Israeli national basketball team and you said they are tall, that doesn't necessarily define you. It simply defines them. But at if five, you said five, I, look I look like feet, a midget to them at five feet six inches, I look in the mirror. Right. <laughs> I know
1: who I am. I am they had I won't say they were self-aware, but they were they were banking on
0: who they had always
1: been. And, and perhaps so they were also
0: Unprepared, and maybe this is one of the interesting aspects of the story, they were unprepared to enter the promised land at that moment. Totally unprepared. Completely so. Because not
1: only were they unprepared to follow the meat's boat, as as is noted by what's going on by, by the man on, on the Sabbath gathering, they are unprepared to battle. I, I keep reiterating. We're dealing with a, milit- with a nascent military force and a need to fight its way through this wilderness of Sinai. And why 40 years? Because they are going to have to keep away from battles. They aren't prepared for it. They are grasshoppers in terms of preparedness. And so they recognize that in themselves. What also is fascinating is that Joshua, the heir of Karim, who was Hoshea, Previous to this, God gave everyone names. There was Esau uh, who became Yaakov, Jacob, who became Yisrael, because he Yis Ish God. God gave him that name. Now we have Moses giving a an expansive an expanded name to to Joshua, Yehoshua, being it is Moses, and this becomes that that whole notion of transitioning Moses into who he must become. It is Moses who adds God's name to Joshua.
0: And, and how does Caleb um, uh, fit with that paradigm? We know that uh, Joshua um, has been identified and anointed as the successor, and you've helped our. Uh, listeners see that um, continuation of uh, leadership having their names changed. As you said, Avram to Avraham and Yaakov to Yisrael. And of course, uh, Moses doesn't have his name changed. Um, and the name Moses, um, it's questionable whether it's a Hebrew name at all, uh, Exactly. So where does Caleb fit in this? Why bring in a second person? For
1: our Christian listeners, Caleb is vital, because Caleb is from the tribe of Judah, which is going to be the tribe of the monarchy, which is going to be the tribe of the messianism of Jesus. And who's his wife? Miriam. Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. So it's linking the two major tribes. The Kohanic priestly tribe, even though Miriam doesn't get that status because hmm, she's a woman. But then Caleb is going to be that direct line. Caleb is going to then, a descendant is going to be Jesse and King David and then King Solomon. And if you read the gospel according to Matthew, you have the entire genealogy. Of Jesus, because he has to be by definition from the tribe of Judah, because that's the tribe of messianism. And so Caleb is going to be needed, he's going to be used, and he's going to become very important also because his father was one of the guys who held up Moses' arms when they were fighting the Amalekites. The story being, so long as Moses could hold up his hands the Israelites would be successful in battle. Their arms get tired. And so it is Judah and Hor, the father of the... the
0: father that's, of that, that's really helpful. And I'm hopeful that our listeners have understood that uh, genealogy that brings us from the story of this morning's Torah portion um, all the way to uh, Christian theology, and Christian messianism, Um, and after the spies return, Moses and God have a conversation. God, (laughs) as one would imagine, is angry, Um, not an unusual situation to find himself in with regard to the Israelites. They have once again disappointed him, and now what does Moses ask of God?
1: The same, similar to what he asks of God in the Golden Calf incident. God, don't screw up because all the other nations and all their other gods are going to blame you for not having control over your people. You brought them out, don't And Arunai, Arunai, Eil, Rahum, You are, it's, he's, he's appealing to God's ego. And this is an amazing story. It is. It is bringing God into a conversational attitude, and God changes His mind. Think of it. think of the theology of it. We have the idea that God is perfect. One of the definition of perfection is never changing. Because if something perfect changes, it can only become imperfect. God changes His mind because His buddy Moses tells him reality. And then then God says, how long am I going? How long will I have to deal with this? Eda, Russia, this, this evil community. Well, when the Jews were looking for how many people are considered a congregation or a community or a minion, why is it 10? 12 spies go out to spy the land. 10 come back with negative. So how are the rabbis going to determine 10? Because it's going to link the 10 spies with the negative reports because we got to get the number 10. So it gives us a proof, one of several proof texts for why a congregation, an Eidah, a group of witnesses, are considered
0: 10. It's also interesting mm-hmm. as you mentioned that, of course, that the we have in Jewish history um, the Ten Lost Tribes, those who somehow um, refused to maintain the covenant as opposed to the descendants of Judah or Joshua um, in um, the land of Israel, as it was known in um, the books of history of the Tanakh. Um, So Caleb and Joshua survive. Moses and God argue. And God then punishes the people. And he punishes yes. them with what seems to be even greater severity than the sin of the golden calf. Yes. Um and, 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 and next
1: week and next week you're going to have the earth opening up, the swallow. This is this is this is a this is a tough This is is a techno prisoner's guard.
0: So as you teach this story about the extra 40 years of wandering and the number 40 becomes uh, repetitive, 40 days on the mountain, 40 days in the land, 40 years wandering. um, Is this about cleansing the people so that those who enter the land have no uh, leftover um, memory or leftover slave mentality so that they can properly respond to their new covenantal responsibilities?
1: I truly believe that to be so. That's why I believe this portion becomes so transitional, because it is going to demand a change and added in the attitude of the people and the recognition that yesterday happened, but we can't let it define tomorrow.
0: So the story of the spies comes to, um, uh, a powerful, um, denouement as they realize their punishment. And we're told that a group, um, gets up on their high horse and goes to try and enter the land in order to avoid having to uh, wander the desert again, and they are slaughtered. And then the Torah portion takes this very strange turn and becomes uh, focused on um, mitzvot. Is there a purposeful... task in ending the Torah portion with this repetition of mitzvot that we've heard before? I mean, sitzit is not something that's new to the Torah portion, uh, to the Torah, and laws of sacrifice are not new. So is there a purposeful intentionality to ending the Torah portion this way? It's, It's sort of a,
1: it's demanding or expecting the people to return to God as the commander. If there's a mitzvah, a commandment, there must be a mitzvah, a commander. By following the mitzvah, the commandment, they are acknowledging that they are going to follow the mitzvah, the commander. And that commander is not Moses, the lawgiver, God. And so it ends on that positive, even though they're going to continue wandering and learning and backsliding, each time that they acknowledge a mitzvah, they are acknowledging the one who gave it.
0: And as you were speaking, I wondered if also the Torah wants to uh, re-emphasize that while this portion began with Moses attempting to take some leadership role— Um, and charging the people with going into the land, it was not successful. And so God needs to reaffirm God's role as uh, the central uh, actor in this uh, narrative story. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Brooks Sussman, who finds himself speaking to us from Jerusalem. I want to thank him for giving up his afternoon nap so that he can speak with us this morning. (laughs) For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can find a podcast of this morning's interesting conversation on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. Shalom and have a good day. Thank you.